Welcome to The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want the truth about having a healthy, happy, strong body. Remember, your body was meant to move. Now here's your host, Stephen Sashen. What is the most important part of your body that you need to develop to be able to run, walk, hike, do yoga, crossfit, whatever it is you do, and do that enjoyably and healthily? Is it your abs? Is it your hamstrings? Is it your glutes? Is it something completely different? You're going to find out on today's episode of the Movement Movement Podcast, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, typically starting feet first. And by the way, it's not even your feet because those things are your foundation, by the way. And we break down the propaganda, the mythology, sometimes the outright lies you've been told about what it does take to run, walk, hike, yoga, CrossFit, et cetera, et cetera, and to do that enjoyably and effectively and efficiently. And did I mention enjoyably? I know I did, because that's the most important thing. If you're not having fun, please do something different until you are. I'm Stephen Sashin, your host for the Movement Movement Podcast and the CEO of ZeroShoes.com. And we call this the Movement Movement, if you're new to us, because we're creating a movement about natural movement. We want to make natural movement the obvious, better healthy choice the way people think that natural food is right now and we need your help to do that so you are part of the movement about natural movement so to be part of the movement go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com you'll find previous episodes and all the different places you can interact with this podcast and it, it content on youtube and facebook and etc etc and that'll well and then you can like and share and give a thumbs up and hit the bell on youtube all those things that you know how to do to spread the word and to hear about what we're doing next in short if you want to be part of the tribe please do subscribe so this is a recording that I'm going to put on in a second uh, that I was done with my friend Nick from The Foot Collective, thefootcollective.com, where frankly, we've just been chatting and decided to rant a little bit. And in it, you're going to learn about maybe the most important thing that you need to know, the most important part of your body you need to develop in order to, well, like I said, have a healthy, happy, strong body. So let's dive in, shall we? Welcome to a sh- the episode of, I don't know what this is, but it's going to be fun. I'm chatting with Steve Sashin today, who is the founder and director at Zero Shoes, uh, one of the favorite brands that we have at uh, TFC Shop. And we wanted to do this because Stephen is always a treat to talk to because you just, I love that you just tell it like it is. So let's just dive into things that we feel need to be talked about. Hold on, this this phrase, tell it like it is, has a whole different connotation here in America. (laughs) Because, you know, some people like to say, tell it like it is. And all they mean is that that person has no filter. Right. Um, Hopefully tell it like it is means that you're telling the truth. And I would hope that that's what I'm doing because I think that I am and I'm willing to be proven wrong and then change what I'm doing, which is actually one of the things that we are going to rant about is uh, people who get. So let's set the context. You and I were chatting. We were both ranting about something. I don't know what, perhaps customer behavior, you know, something like when people want to get your attention, they will ta- they will talk about you on Facebook, but not tag you and then complain that you didn't respond to their post, even though there was no literal way you could find it. Oh, uh, and I haven't I'm, even, that's probably happening right now, but I don't even know about it. So you know what? <laughs> Joy right. is missing out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I like that one. My other favorite one that's related to that is someone emails us and they use the wrong email address and then complain that we don't respond. I love that one too. That's a good one. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love getting, uh, PayPal disputes where people are like, yeah, I bought something and it didn't, it didn't get sent to me. And then we look and it's like, uh, you didn't even enter your correct email. So oh, no, we'll no, fix sorry. it for you and pretend like it was our mistake. <laughs> no, no, here, here's my favorite. Why did you send the package to my childhood home address? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, funny you should ask. It's because for every one of the thousand plus orders we get every day, we check every one of them and do a search to find someone's childhood address and randomly select a customer to ship that package <laughs> to the wrong place. It's like, what? Anyway, so that, those were some of our customer rants. Then we have product rants and industry rants as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wanted to talk about like, okay, so... I think junk science or junk that people are calling science is something oh. that is coloring many domains of life right now. And I would love to, to break that down because I think, you know, even we can even take the sub domain of like natural footwear. The yeah. question that I get, which I find hilarious is where is the science and the research to show that wearing shoes that let your feet move like feet is better than shoes that don't let your feet move naturally. Please show me that research. And it's like, I don't even know how to respond to this anymore. It's so crazy. Then I'll tell you how I respond. I say two things. I say maybe three things. Thing number one, we're not the intervention. For the thousands of years that humans have been wearing footwear, up until like the that. early 70s, it mostly looked like ours. In fact, if you look, there was a, a, an archaeological dig in Oregon, and they found a sandal that looks remarkably like this. This is our mm -hmm. Genesis sandal. I mean, it's a very similar. Now, the sole is not made of, of um, that's the word I'm looking for, rubber. Um, there was another word I couldn't find, com compression molded rubber. It's made out of sage bark, but same, same basic idea. So up until the early 70s, you know, this is what we're doing. So the intervention is the new, quote, modern athletic shoe. So right. the question there is, you know, where's the evidence for that? And the evidence mm -hmm. for that is injuries have not been reduced at all. And um, performance has not been improved because of the shoes during that entire time. And there's actually hundreds of studies demonstrating that letting your feet move naturally is better than not. So Sarah Ridge at BYU showed that just walking in a pair of minimalist shoes gives you the same strength benefits or increases in strength that you would get if you did an actual foot exercise program. And on the flip side, there's research, I don't remember who did it, and I'm not even sure if it's been published yet. I heard about this from Irene Davis at Harvard, showing that they took orthotics and put them in the shoes of healthy runners. And within 10 weeks, they had lost up to 10% of the muscle mass in their feet. That's not good. And then the third thing I point out. So, I mean, that's is, not a surprise, right? If you use a crutch well, of course not. and you don't use your leg for a month, it's like, you're probably gonna have a weak leg. I think most people would be like, that makes sense. Right. Same idea. Or, you know, and a version of that is why is it that people think that feet are somehow horribly designed and they can't right. support you. You go to third world countries and you just don't find podiatrists treating people <laughs> or things where they, you know, put them in art support right. or of any sort. They're but, not required. Um, well, you know, it's like if you went to the doctor and said, you know, my wrist is bothering me. And the doctor says, oh, we're going to have to immobilize your neck for the rest of your life. You'd go... <laughs> what? What do you what do you say? Yeah. I know, but we apply different logic to a different body part for some reason. And it's like the whole right. system abides by the same principles. And I remember I well, when I did a podcast with Golden from Ultra, he talked about I looked up one of his talks from like 2013 and he gave stats on rates of foot problems in shod versus unshod populations. And it was so interesting because even the superficial stat without much description is like stunning. It's like 78% yeah. of people in shod cultures will develop foot pain at some point. 3% of people in unshod cultures will develop a foot issue at some point. And then if you put a little asterisk beside that 3%, it's like, by the way, those people like step on a tree root or stub their toe, it hurts for a week. And then they're like, yeah, my feet are fine. The other right. people are like, my feet hurt all the time. And big surprise, feet you're wearing foot casts. Yeah. Oh, it's so, well, you it's know, so I mean, I've look, I, I've been predominantly barefoot for the last 
12, 13 years. I can't even do the math anymore. And not that that's math. That's just called memory, which I don't have anymore. <laughs> right. the, I, I've had two, two injuries. Hard drives out of space, right? Yeah. I've, I got no CPU cycles to spare. <laughs> I've had two injuries in that time. Same injury twice. I stubbed my toe. I just wasn't paying attention. You know, one time I'm walking my, up my sister's driveway and the garage pad was like three inches high. I didn't know that. And I slammed into it. And then a couple of months ago, I'm taking a walk with a friend and we're just walking down the sidewalk and there was a rock that had moved, that somehow had gotten moved from being around a tree to the middle of the sidewalk. I wasn't paying attention. So right. that's and it. it's like a little reminder to be like, be, be a bit more mindful. It's like, that's literally, that's what yeah. I get. When I stub my toe, I'm like, okay, I got to pay attention a little bit more or it just happens sometimes. Yeah. I go for that one. I don't really care. <laughs> You know, it's sort of like I was hanging out with a bunch of psychiatrists and physical therapists and healers of varying kinds. They were all talking about the different diets they were on. And there's a pause in the conversation. And I said, I'm on the, I don't know when I'm going to get hit by a bus diet. <laughs> I like that one. Give us some more <laughs> details said, of what that diet consists of. Yeah, it's pretty much what I'm in the mood to eat. And that's about it because I'm not going to sacrifice something that I enjoy because I have this imagined scenario of, you know, if I eat a certain way, my body will change shape in a particular way. And then I'll finally be right. happy. I don't have that one. So not saying that I love this thing. I'll tell you a weird personal thing. As I roll out of bed every morning, I pinch a little bit of, you know, right around my abdomen there to see what my body fat feels like as if somehow yep. overnight, I magically drop 5% body fat. <laughs> Has that ever happened? <laughs> No, I have had times where, you know, I've gone to the bathroom and had to take my belt in a notch, but that's a whole different story. So, <laughs> but, but the whole point is like, I mean, I, I'm not someone who overindulges. I don't binge on things, it, mm -hmm. but a good piece of chocolate cake back in the days when I was a diehard vegan, a friend of mine said, one of my favorite things about you is you're a diehard vegan, but if you see a piece of chocolate cake and it's not vegan, you will eat that cake. <laughs> yeah, there's an exception, uh, a little window that, that is, that's personal to everyone. Actually, out of curiosity, what made you want to be a vegan and what made you get out of being a vegan? So I have, a, I have a genetic disorder I found out about mm, about 10 years ago. I was at the oh, first paleo conference, Paleo FX all these people talking about paleo, this paleo, that. And of course it was very entertaining because a, none of the paleo experts could agree on what paleo was or wasn't. And B out of the 10 sort of most famous people in that group, five of them were morbidly obese and four of them had just gotten C-reactive protein scores that were through the roof because they were eating so much meat. Oh, great role and models. So, great. Let's listen to these exactly. people for sure. <laughs> exactly. So there is that dilemma. And besides, you know, the more back to your point about the truth, the more research that comes out, about our paleolithic ancestors, the more we find that what people say, what paleo people say, those people ate is not true. They say they never ate grains and there's actually evidence they ate tons of grains. They said they never ate, you know, basically sugar. They ate tons of sugar. So anyway, whole other story. But well, that's, that's too inconvenient to talk about, Stephen. We've already created the brand paleo. People are already drinking the juice. So let's not talk about that, please. Well, no, I, I said to one of the, I, you're right. I said to one of the doctors, <laughs> this idea that you each have that there's an ideal diet for all human beings, even though you can't agree on what that diet is. It's kind of silly because I said, you know, I'm a genetic freak. And the guy said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm a sprinter and I'm a Jewish sprinter. So not a whole lot of us. In fact, <laughs> oh, you may be talking to the fastest Jew in the world, but that's a whole nice. other story. <laughs> fastest Jew of the world over 55. Anyway, but I said to this guy, you know, you guys all talk about eating a lot of meat. I've never liked meat since the day I was born. I remember vividly, like my mom would make pork chops. I would chew it up and stuff it in my cheek and then make an excuse to go to the bathroom and spit it in the toilet. 
Nice. I just, you know, my dad, I couldn't have been more than seven or eight. And my what dad turned you off says, from it? Was it the texture or the taste or just you weren't a fan? Well, I'll get there. So here we go. So I got to tell you this one though. One day my dad said, you know, you're going to sit under the table until you finish that whatever piece of meat it was. And I stayed there for three hours until he said, nice. go, to, go, to, go to bed. So <laughs> So I said to this doctor, you know, I've never liked meat. And he says, well, do you like coffee? I said, no. He's, do you like tea? I said, if I never drank another cup, I wouldn't miss it. He's, do you like red wine? I said, no. And he like goes down this list of foods that I either aggressively don't like or would never miss if I never had another taste of them again. And he said, chocolate? oh, you don't taste. I, uh, chocolate was a whole different game. Um, <laughs> he says, you have a genetic disorder. You don't taste savory flavors. So I look it up and I had my genome sequenced. And in fact, I have a known genetic disorder. It's kind of rare where I just don't, don't taste savory flavors, the umami flavor. And so mm. meat just tastes like slightly irony, slightly metallic mush. Wow. Just, that's very interesting. It's like being colorblind. I was mm. at a dinner party. Someone brought in some, you know, raised by virgins, massaged by nuns, blessed by the Dalai Lama beef. <laughs> And so I like to try things. I'm always curious. Yeah. So I try to bite. And I, I said, so I said, this whole room full of people. And I was genuinely curious. I said, so this has a flavor that you actually can taste and enjoy. And everyone looked at me like I was crazy. And my wife says, you made everyone so self-conscious. You ruined the meal for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just destroyed it. They're like, well, now yeah. it doesn't taste as good anymore. Yeah. 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 It wasn't my intention. I mean, I was genuinely curious because I couldn't taste it. So what made me be a vegan was just, you know, let's just drop dairy for the fun of it and see what happens. And I didn't notice it and didn't miss it. And what got me out of being a vegan, this is going to sound crazy. I'm walking by, I'm walking along a sidewalk by Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. This is 15 years ago, maybe. And literally the thought popped in my head, a thought that I hadn't had in ages. And the thought was sushi. And I went, okay. Nice. And so I went in and got, you know, a little thing of sushi. And that was the end of my veganness. And so I eat some dairy. I have some kind of fishy something two or three times a week. That's cool. about it. I like it. Yeah, I love Joel Furman's uh, approach of just being a nutritarian. It's like just eat things high in nutrients. And it turns out if you do that and you eliminate a lot of the like unnatural stuff, it doesn't really matter what you eat, how much you eat of it, like you're going to do okay. Takes care of most of it. I was taking a walk with a friend of mine and she said, you know, I wish I would just, you know, could just, I'm trying to listen to my body to know what I need to eat. And I literally fell on the ground laughing. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, first of all, I'm laughing because I used to have thoughts like that. And what's so funny is I can answer your question and address the question underneath your question. So your question is, I know what your body wants to eat, ice cream, French fries, chocolate cake. I mean, basically right. as many calories as fast as you can get. So that's what we know. Yeah. But you have this idea that you could quote, listen to your body. I don't know what that means. And that if you did, it would ask you to eat things that you think would change your body in such a way that you would eventually like it and be happy. But right. that's just silly. If you walk around and ask a million people, do you like the way this thing looks or functions? You will not find anybody who says yes. Everyone's right. going to have a thing they don't like, a thing that doesn't work the way they want. This is just an, a concept that we have. And, right. you know, you're making Because we're told crazy. all day that you are not, you're not the way you should be or that you could be better. Like literally surrounded <laughs> by messaging all day long. Right. How could people not feel that? Well, this is one of my rants is that what, especially in the West, we have this idea that there's a certain collection of thoughts that we have that are personal 
and that need to be resolved. And most of them are just proof that we're human beings. So like the, I don't like my body and I should like it. Why do you think that you should? None of us do mostly because we never developed the skill to look in one of these and determine whether there was bacteria in it. What we developed is the skill of taking a sip and then checking to see how it feels and then knowing if we need to throw up as quickly as possible if, we, <laughs> if it doesn't do it automatically. So, you know, we've developed this hypersensitivity to internal sensations that we now just have no reason to use them. And so we just turn it internally right. forever. So there's all these things that are just proof of, you know, this is the way human beings work. And, and we take it as a, as a sign of a personal problem, which is fundamentally wrong. But anyway, yeah. this was a tangent from, this was a tangent about science and, uh, and telling it like it is. I'm going to give you a science one. Here's one of my science rants. Okay. I don't want to do this one. Nike has a new shoe, new issue called the React Infinity Run. And the way they advertise it, you go to a store, if anyone remembers what stores are, you go to a store and there's a little sign underneath the shelf with the shoe that says designed to reduce injury. Right. Which I think oh, is hysterical. That, I know. That is so disturbing. Like, how does Vibram get in trouble to say you wear shoes with less support, your feet are going to get stronger. And then Nike says these will prevent injury. And there it's like it doesn't say it doesn't it, it's better. It doesn't say we'll prevent injury. It says designed to reduce injury. Who designed shoes to uh, increase injury? So <laughs> yeah, all of our other on. shoes are designed to increase them, but these ones aren't. Right. Well, it's like, you know, Cheerios, it says supports heart health. That's, it's a meaningless phrase. I mean, right. heart health is, is meaningless and supports is meaningless in that sentence. Right. So, but here's the kicker. The study Avoid that any they, foods that make health claims. That's a good heuristic that I share with people. It's like, if it makes health claims, it's probably not something that's tremendous for you. You know, I don't know. There's a new superfood that I heard about that comes out of the Amazon that the three guys who ate it are 3,000 years old. And it, really? I mean, how can you argue with those facts? I want to so, talk to those guys. If, if it's true, then, yeah. but they're not advertising on their boxes though. They're just, you know, that's the difference. No. And if, and, and, but if you do advertise with them, you're exploiting tribal populations and that's, that's not good either. But right. so Nike does this thing. <laughs> they say it's an independent study that they designed and that they paid for, and they had a third party perform. And in fact, the Nike, the React Infinity Run did reduce injuries by 50% compared to the other shoe that they used, which was their best-selling motion control running shoe. I don't remember what it's called, unfortunately. In a 12-week study, and the way they defined injuries was that whatever happens puts you out for at least three running sessions. So really, it's like a 10-week study. In that first 10 weeks, they're looking at injury rates. Their best-selling motion control shoe, over 30% of the people got injured. In the new designed to reduce injury, only 14.5% got injured. <laughs> now, on the one hand, you would go, hey, that's great. It actually did reduce injury by 50%. On the other hand, the way I like to frame it is I'm going to buy you dinner tonight. Which restaurant do you want to go to? The one where you're going to get food poisoning one out of seven meals or one out of three meals. <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. Because that's basically what they're saying. You're going to get injured. I mean, one out of seven people who wear the shoe is still going to get injured within the first 10 weeks. I know it's crazy. So that's the manipulation of you're basically just manipulating people with what you're telling them about what you did with no reference to like the actual details nor is the average person interested. They're just like, tell me something's good and I want right. to buy it. Here's my oh, money. No, but, it's but, like crazy. But here's what's worse. It's, it's, it's worse than not only is the average person not interested, the people who reprint this press release in the media, they're not interested. 
they were reprinting this before the actual study was released. So Nike put out a press release saying reduces injury by 50%. It gets reprinted basically verbatim. No one looked into it. I tracked down the guy who did the study and said, can you show me the study? And amazingly, he sent it to me before it was even published. That's how I found out the numbers, which weren't being mentioned at all. It's like when Adidas came out with the, and and for the snobs in the room or Europeans, Adidas, when Adi came out with their boost (laughs) foam. And yes, if you want to be a real snob, you call it Adi. So and for people who wonder why, it's Adi Dostler, Adi Das. Anyway, right. they took this two-pound, roughly two-pound steel ball, bounced it off the boost foam, showed how bouncy it was compared to the other company's foam, which wasn't very bouncy. Right. Of course, no other company uses this foam ever. But more importantly, you know, <laughs> you don't tell people that. Ball, no, it's fine. Not important. Other company, some other company. Right. But here's the kicker: you're not a two-pound steel ball. What? You mean those results aren't going to accurately carry over to my body? No, that can't be right, Stephen. I would never say anything like that. I'm just saying you're not a two-pound steel ball. <laughs> okay, See, we can I'm agree on like that. Is, telling it like it is. And it's one of these things that, you know, the the fact that we don't have good science education and people aren't good at critical thinking makes people susceptible to admittedly brilliant marketing. I mean, look, here's the best one ever. You go, <laughs> you go into a running shoe store and they'll have a treadmill and they'll put you on that treadmill and evaluate you in some way and then recommend a shoe. Mm-hmm. Two things. You go to different shoe stores, you're going to recommend different shoes. Hmm. So that's calls it into question to begin with. Second thing is this whole idea. I don't know if Brooks invented it, but it's part of their run signature program where they put little dots on your knees too and watch you squat a few times then have you run. Oh, in socks on the treadmill, they w- won't tell you to run barefoot because they don't want to give you the idea you can do that. But you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like, just can't give, cannot slip any notion that being barefoot is good for people. No, 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 no. Definitely can't do that. So they, <laughs> so then they have you run and then they make some diagnosis about which Brooks shoe is right for you. Well, this is based on an idea that there are different kinds of feet and different kinds of movement that correlate to certain shoes you're supposed to wear. Well, the army who gets a lot of people injured when they're training because they're running in these big, thick, stiff boots, but they don't think that's why they decided to do a test (laughs) and they took, I think it was maybe 900 people split them into two groups. And one group was divided into three groups. Actually it was divided into three groups, split in half, however you want to think about that. And one half of the half got the shoes that were recommended for one of those three groups that they were in a neutral shoe, a motion control shoe, whatever their foot type for their foot type. And the other group was just given a random shoe. The difference in injury rates, zero. Big donut. So this whole idea of- I wonder who didn't tell Brooks that. I've told the CEO of Brooks that. (laughs) He knows. I'm guessing guessing not a lot was done about that because, yeah, it is marketing. And and the problem is marketing is being sold as science. That that is the core of the problem. Correct. There's another version. I mean, like I was on this panel discussion with the American College of Sports Medicine. And both Brooks and Adidas, sorry, Adidas, Adi, they were both there. And when they were asked, what's the future of footwear, they both said the same thing, which is basically individual differences, accommodating what's unique to you. So Brooks, their idea was they were going to change the outsole and, you know, maybe put something a little thicker here or a little thicker here, depending on how you ran. And for Adi, it was changing the midsole to do something similar. Well, Adi's project for doing that has been suspended because I asked the obvious question, where's the proof that this improves in performance or reduces injury? to which they had no answer. Adi is currently not going on this project because it was based on a custom-made 3D printed midsole. And they essentially found that they it's just not tenable. 
I don't know what Brooks is doing, but Brooks practically admitted that they want to give you a different shoe for like everything you could possibly do. Like one shoe for walking into the bathroom, one shoe for walking out of the bathroom because you weigh less. I mean, you know, just crazy stuff. I wonder why it's almost like they make more money, the more shoes they sell you. Yeah. We've had people tell us, you know, we have a 5,000 mile sole warranty on our shoes and we've had business advisors say, you need to, you need to uh, make shoes that don't last as long. And I go, no, (laughs) no, thanks. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love your, so the three hours under the table, that stubbornness clearly has permeated through your whole life, which is probably why, <laughs> which is probably why you make shoes because it's the, it's the, it seems like the craziest thing to embark on, but when no one else is doing it, it's like, yeah, I'm just going to sit under the table for three hours. I'm just going to chew glass and go through the process of making shoes. You know, I'm, I don't think of myself as stubborn. I think of myself as committed to truth. And the truth is <laughs> right. I did want to swallow that chewed up stuff in my cheek. And the truth (laughs) is that, you know, the benefits that my wife and I discovered when we got out of shoes were so demonstrable. And then people kept asking me to make barefoot style sandals for them. Hmm. And they had the same kind of benefits. And then we, while we were just in the process of doing that, we met some guys who they'd been in footwear for like 35 years. They all started at Reebok actually, and then moved around. It's a very incestuous business. And they recently went out on their own and they said, you know, we believe natural movement's the most important thing there is. We believe in you guys and what you're doing. And we would start this business with you, but we've been in footwear so long that we're not stupid enough to try and start a shoe company. And Lena and I said, yeah, we know we're hyper-optimistic and naive, but that's how things get done. So away right. we go. Exactly. And the dreamers are the ones who make the change. And sometimes you got to uh, learn as you go, but yeah. Well, you know, it's the people who have a very bizarre misunderstanding of risk tolerance. (laughs) (laughs) That's a polite way of saying naive. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like for me, you know, the worst thing that happens is I go broke. All right, whatever. You know, if I have to go to Baja, California and live on the beach, I can do that. I know how to spearfish. Yeah. It doesn't sound too, doesn't sound too bad. No, I met somebody this is a homeless woman. Actually, sorry. It was a friend of mine who met this woman on uh, like Venice beach. And she was just sitting there with her shopping cart full of stuff on this one bench and my friends struck up a conversation with her and she said, yeah, I just, you know, stay here in front of this house every day. And my friend says, Oh, is it to inspire you to get off the street? She goes, no, that used to be my house. It's to remind me how miserable I was when I lived in it. Wow. Mic drop. That's, that is powerful. It was, it's a stunner. I, I really like that one a lot. So, <laughs> That's great. all right. So science masquerading, you know, I mean, what's happened in the look, here's here's science 101, the Vibram lawsuit. We have to rescue science, by the way, because like people are starting to get a really shitty perspective of science, but it's not fair because science is this beautiful mindset of constantly trying to prove yourself wrong to figure out the truth. And we can't let the word get bastardized by all these people that are messing it up. So, like, how do we rescue science and reclaim its true essence? Like, oh, I, I'm, it's really frustrating. It's, oh, I'm sure you and I can do that on our own. That's a, that's a piece of cake. It's, you know, I think. That's a really good question, actually. And I'm going to talk completely out of my butt and make things up for the next 30 seconds because I don't know. But the, the thing that occurs to me is that we're no longer or we're, ne- I don't know if we ever were, educating children on how to think clearly, on how to assess information accurately, how to look for counterfactuals, how to look. This is a thing that I do all the time. Wait, I'm going to find something to draw on. Whenever someone tells me something that just has the ring of not true, I do this thing. This is like statistics 101. I didn't know that. I just, again, if you learn to think, you start figuring these things out. So people say 
A, look at that, I'm writing upside down. They go, A leads to B. Okay. Here, wait, I'll draw an arrow. They go, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that, you know, A leads to B. Now, what I then say is how many times does A lead to C? Hmm. And which is the opposite of B. And how many times does D maybe lead to B? Hmm. And if D and C are bigger than A, A is probably not right. Now, that's, <laughs> that's a, very that's elegant. A I like that. <laughs> it's, it's a really simple thing. And it's kind of an Occam's razor thing. Look, here, I'm going to step on a bunch of toes right now, pun intended. Let's talk about grounding and earthing, shall we? Oh, I would love to. And just as a side note for that, my, what I always come back to if we want to rescue science is improve public science literacy at a very basic level, like what you just exactly. did. And on, only the people who are willing to actually listen are going to be the ones you give a shit about anyway, because they're the only ones that matter. The people who don't I, care to want to learn, you know, you almost have to wait until you get more people on your ship before you can then start to invite other people that aren't ready. I think, I think you know, look, kids are naturally curious, but what they're up against is evolutionary biology. These things inside of our skulls are not wired to think critically. They're wired to come to very quick decisions and stick to them because it's not energy efficient to every time you're in the savanna and the grass is doing this to figure out if hiding behind the grass is something that you're going to eat or something that wants to eat you. You need to make a snap decision and react fast. Now you can make the wrong decision. You can decide that that's a, you know, saber tooth lion and it's a saber tooth bunny and you run away and you're passing your genes on to a bunch of other scared idiots. So... (laughs) So that's the thing, but, but kids are naturally curious. And if you give them the ability to investigate things, many of them are really, really into it. I mean, there's a reason why this is not a, I'm not trying to make a gender specific thing, but you know, boys more than girls are super interested in watching construction projects. Yes. I like seeing how things work. Yep. A friend of mine made a bajillion dollars once he, he had a son and he noticed this, he just took a camera out to construction sites and shot like 30 minutes of video and sold those videos, made millions. Genius. So <laughs> yeah. So again, we're not wired to, to do this because uh, the energy inefficiency of it. Uh, and in fact, when you create a new belief and someone challenges it, the research is very clear. You actually use those, that contrary information to hold on to your belief even more firmly. Hmm. And when you really challenge somebody on it, they react like you're trying to kill them. And I think that's a neurological phenomenon where the way we store certain kind of beliefs is very similar to the way we store our very sense of identity. And right. so they're very tightly, tightly wound. Yeah. So, so you got to decouple those. And I mean, I learned, like, I think that's one of the biggest things you see is people take attacks on their concept or not even attacks, but like, you know, trying to give someone a different perspective and challenging the one they hold is like you're challenging just, their entire existence. Even just asking them questions. A friend of mine used to bring people that he knew to a brunch that we had every Sunday just to get them to argue with me about things. Like, did we land on the moon? It's like speed chess. You're just just there. Eh, No, yes, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, what I would do, I would ask them questions about the arguments they were presenting and they wouldn't be able to answer the questions. And I never made, I never made one comment about my position. Right. You Uh, just went straight uh, up Socratic on them. Yeah. Like, um, you know, when someone talked about the moon landing being, being fake, I said, do you know what kind of computers were, were being used at the time to display information? Because the, I mean, in the, in the sixties, human beings didn't have computers. I remember the first computer that I ever saw was not something power was in fact, ironically, 
was playing Lunar Lander, the first little game on a <laughs> 300 baud modem in high, junior high school or high school. And even that wasn't a good simulation. So, you know, what kind of computer does it take to do a simulation that's good enough to fool the 100,000 people that were involved right. in that project? And did that computer exist at that time? And they, right. you know, their brains would start to fry. And the answer is no, those things didn't exist at this time. I mean, they were doing this stuff on slide rules, figuring out how to get people to the moon. So anyway, we, we, there was a tangent about teaching people and there was something else. Uh, I don't remember. The solution to taking back science. And then we got into, yeah, I think the Socratic method of just asking people who get upset when you ask them questions, it's very telling. And sometimes that is my right. deep participation in the conversation where it's like, I just asked you a question and you got upset. I don't know if I want to pursue more energy in it. Well, here's, here's another variation of that. And this, this will be kind of a rant of mine. So I've been living and breathing this stuff for, you know, more than a decade. People will challenge me with their opinions about things for which they have little to no information. And when I present the data that I've collected over the years, not my personal opinions, but actual information, they don't handle it very well. Why do you think they don't Um, handle it very well? I have two favorites. One is someone who didn't like that we weren't a 100% vegan company and said, well, why don't you use these other non-vegan le- or these other vegan leathers? That's because there aren't any that perform well enough for what we're trying to do. And he said, what about this pineapple leather? And I said, without having to look it up, because I already knew about it. Oh, the one that explicitly says it's not for use in footwear. And he said, what about the mushroom leather? At the time I said, oh, and again, I knew about it already. I said, at the time, they'd only made one yard of it. I said, so it doesn't exist and it's super expensive. Now, by the way, they're using it for things. And it also says not for use for footwear. And he says, you know, what about, he mentioned some like one or two other things. And I knew about them already and responded already because I'd looked into it already until finally his only response to me was, well, what makes you such an expert? It's (laughs) It's your job. Yeah, it's exactly what I said. So it's because I am one of the experts on the planet about this. (laughs) <laughs> that's, I mean, it's what I do all day, every day. So that's, right. that's a favorite. My other favorite is humans didn't evolve to run on hard surfaces. So this is a naturalistic fallacy that there was some Edenic time where we were all just, you know, swimming in chocolate rivers and uh, having grapes fed to us by angels and, yeah. and, 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 and running and on trampolines everywhere we go <laughs> and running on trampolines. And I, I say, well, dude, have you ever been to the places that you think we evolved in? I mean, right. it's worse than running on any road, hard packed mud, just like cement, but with prickly stickly things that are, right. and, and hot things in a way that, you know, you've never experienced. You go down to the Copper Canyon and run with the Tatarmara. I mean, what they're running on is like what we all ran on for thousands of years. And it, boy, you will pick a, a paved road any day of the week. And, but the other interesting part is even if we didn't, quote, evolve to run on those surfaces, that doesn't mean we're not able to. Right. If we grew up on, on a different surface, that doesn't mean we're not adaptable to other things. And I think some people actually make the slippery kind of, they lose the distinguishment between concrete. Like maybe we weren't supposed to run. We didn't evolve to run on asphalt. Okay, but that doesn't say that we're unable, like you're saying. But right. they, they immediately take that and then they kind of like sneak in hard surfaces as a replacement for that, thinking they're synonymous. And if you agree that, okay, asphalt didn't exist a thousand years ago, I agree with that. And we didn't run on that, but that doesn't mean we can't run on hard surfaces or that we didn't right. run on hard surfaces. So it's like these little tricks that people don't really, I'd even think notice, but they just say, and they're like, see, that's the truth. 
Well, and again, it goes back to this whole, it goes back to this thing. It goes back to counterfactuals. It's like, okay, if you believe we didn't evolve to run on a hard surface, can you look for an opposite case? Can you look for a case where we did run on surfaces that are hard or difficult or dangerous in some way right. and see, you know, and see if there's examples like, here's a, here's a fun example back to paleo. There was a, there's a woman named Denise Minger, M-I-N-G-E-R, whom I totally adore. She's brilliant and smart and, you know, just absolutely wonderful and very funny. And she became the belle of the paleo ball because she had been a diehard raw food vegan and then started having a bunch of health problems and then switched to being like, you know, I'm just going to go kill my own cow and eat it raw practically. <laughs> Good for and, her. Yeah. So she got totally, totally into paleo things and the paleo people loved her because she was an, a former vegan. Well, she's also a smart researcher. So she decided to research some of the things that the paleo people were saying and look for counterfactuals. So mm -hmm. refined carbohydrates are bad for you. Well, let's check. And she found some civilization, some tribes, some parts of the world where people eat like 80% of their calories come from refined carbohydrates. And they do not have the health problems that the paleo community was saying that you would get if you ate refined carbohydrates. Right. There are other people who don't eat refined carbohydrates, but you know, just get the majority of their dietary calorie intake through other forms of carbohydrate, including like, you know, sugar, just plain straight sugar uh, or honey. Again, they don't have the health problems that the paleo community suggested. What they do is they don't eat too many calories and they're relatively active. Right. So th this, the whole thing of looking for an And their lifestyle reflects what our biology is built for, even external to that. Like there's so many little things that we do that are so counter to what our biology is built for. Like we, we discount all the other things sometimes. Well, and back to your, into, to your point about what our biology is built for, again, the idea that, that there's a one-size-fits-all is something that we all love the idea of. And mm. sometimes it's true, and I'll say that about that in a second, and sometimes it's not. So there's this idea that, you know, there's a diet that's the best diet. Well, Denise, you know, she, oh, she also looked at the rice diet. The rice diet was something that was done at Duke University, which is where I went. And there was a guy who took morbidly obese people and put them on a diet of basically just fruit juice and raw white sugar. Mm. Not only did they lose, I mean, they were eating as much as they could eat all day, every day. Now, the challenge with this diet is he, he literally whipped people into eating because it's so unpalatable to eat like that. Huh. And he was just trying to force them to get calories in their body and they could eat as Like with you know, a whip, a literal possible. physical whip? Literally. <laughs> That's great. That seems, how did he get that one by ethical review board? <laughs> uh, once they found out, the whole thing disappeared. So, and when I was at Duke, I knew people who delivered for Domino's who got paid a thousand dollars a pizza to sneak pizzas in to some of the people who were on the rice diet. So, <laughs> That's great. A thousand dollars. Wow. $1, Those guys hit the jackpot. Yeah. yeah, it was a good one. So I was like, oh, I got to start delivering pizza. Yeah. But anyway, you know, not only did it bring their weight down to normal, it eliminated permanently their diabetes. Hmm. And so again, a massive counterfactual. So the idea that there's a single diet for everyone. So our, certain things about our biology are probably unique to us for various reasons. Our gut microbiome, our ancestry, you know, a number of things. But certain things are not unique to us. What makes efficient running? What's the right. best way? Look, what's the best way to get the most, let's just use something simple, push-ups. What's the best way to orient your body and do push-ups? You might have some arguments about, you know, whether you, where you position your elbows and how wide your hands are, but there's one thing you're never going to disagree about. Do you do this with your fingers or do you do this with your fingers? There's right. no one who's ever going to do a push-up like this because this is more stable. Similar idea with right. your feet. So there's certain things. Those biomechanical that, principles that apply regardless of how special you think you are. 
Yeah, exactly. Moment arms are moment arms. Doesn't make a difference who you are. You know, you might be better or worse at certain things based on your muscle belly and the length of your femur or various things, but fundamentally it's still going to be the same that if you land with your foot in front of your body, you're applying braking forces, which you then, which put additional stress on the body. And then you have to reaccelerate and do that in a place where your prime movers, your glutes and hamstrings are not being used optimally and under, under stress when you're pulling instead of pushing that's problematic. Well, what about runner X who runs ultra marathons all the time, wears extremely cushioned shoes, heel strikes, like why, like they do it. So it must be okay. Yeah. There's a couple things for that. One is how long are they able to continue doing that enjoyably and healthily? And some people, maybe they can, because look, here's the, well, and this is another thing about science. And even I will argue the minimalist community misrepresents science very frequently or misrepresents what they think is science very frequently. And so they'll show pictures of people landing with their heel first mm-hmm. and say, see their heel striking, that's bad. I go, whoa, 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 you don't know how fast that person's moving across the ground. For all you know, their foot's coming in contact with the ground. Maybe they're first. walking also. Well, they're clearly running in this case, but they could okay. be walking. But even still, the fact that your heel comes in contact with the ground first, the more important thing is the force application. So if you're moving fast enough, right, the rate of loading. Exactly. Your heel might touch the ground first, but by the time, you know, the, the split second that it takes to end up sort of flat footed, for example, could be so fast that for all practical purposes, you're a midfoot lander, right? It just doesn't really matter. Hmm. And, and there are some people who are just better able to tolerate certain things than others. There are some people who, I mean, for whatever reason, but you can't use the exception to try and prove the rule in this case. Right. You can't use one snapshot to say, like, do you know anything about that person's injury history? Do you know anything about like, have you test? what about runners that don't run that way and that run with less injuries? Do you know, like there's so many variables missing and it's really easy to simplify it to the point where it proves what you're trying to prove, but it doesn't mean that it's actually true. Right. Human beings, again, another thing we want to do is try and simplify things as much as possible. And we usually go way too far and oversimplify things. Right. So look, the whole barefoot thing, when people say, this is partly what got Vieberman in trouble, is that the way the five fingers was positioned and the way barefoot running was positioned in 2009 was just take off your shoes or put on a pair of five fingers and everything's going to be great. It just wasn't true. And I'm the first one to say, it's not about the footwear, it's about the form. It's right. just that certain footwear makes it easier or less easy to get enough feedback to notice your shitty form and to adapt to a better form. Right. And it's all about the feedback. This is why Irene Davis breaks things down in what she calls minimalist and partial minimalist shoes. I accused her of being politically correct. And that if she weren't, she would say true minimalist and fake minimalist. Right. And the fake (laughs) minimalists are the ones put out by pretty much every major shoe company, which have, which a are typically. They have less of the crap, but they don't have no crap. Yeah, exactly. There's a little, there's usually they're too narrow in the midfoot. They're often not wide enough in the forefoot and they have too much padding and it's the padding because then you can't feel enough to get the information that you need. That that's the real, the the biggest problem. It's like, Steven, you can either swallow this much mercury or we'll give you a little bit less. What would you rather? It's like, I I don't want any mercury. Actually, I'm I'm good. (laughs) Well, the mercury is the dessert they give you at that restaurant where it's either one out of seven meals that gives you food poisoning or one out of three meals. So they have this amazing mercury flambe, just, oh man. (laughs) It's to to die for. (laughs) for. Um, Okay. Two things and then we'll wrap up. And I think we should just, I I was like, oh yeah, we'll do half an hour. It is what it is. We've already gone 45 minutes. So maybe we should just do these once a month and just have a release valve for talking about shit that we don't talk about otherwise, maybe. Happy to. Two things. Number one, I had this kind of thought in my head when some of the other day is like, I found a research study that I think is pretty good that shows orthotics help reduce foot pain. 
And I was like, okay, let's play. If someone comes up to you and says, Stephen, what color is the sky? Let's just, let's just go real, real time. Let's just pretend this is real. Stephen, what color is the sky? I'm going to say blue, but only because I'm giving a colloquial correct answer. Okay, perfect. Well, what if I told you I have research to show that the sky is black? What would you say about that? I have a thousand pictures. I have a lot of data. I have a thousand pictures that show that the sky is black. So I don't know if the sky is blue. Um, and I'd like you to prove me otherwise because I have research. Do you have research to show that the sky is blue? I don't actually, you know, in fact, yeah, in fact, there's some art. Well, anyway, no, I don't. What I would say is, do you have eyeballs? Yes. Go outside and see what, what color the sky is. And then we can both, let's just go look together. And it's like people, people forget that you mm-hmm. can figure shit out yourself. Scientists mm-hmm. don't have to tell you everything. Hold on, hold on. I, this is going to sound, this is going to sound paradoxical and absurd. This next okay. thing I'm going to say, I have a friend who's one of the smartest people I know. That's not the absurd part. Here it is. <laughs> who, who thinks the earth might be flat. Okay. Now I have said to him exactly what you just said. There are um, from the, from the flat earth model, there are comments about where the sun and the moon should be seen at certain places at certain times of the year. The best thing to do is go down to like the bottom of South America and then take a look and see what you see. I said, I will pay you to get on an airplane and go check and see if the sun is in fact where the flat earth model says it should be when, you know, at, like the solstice, for example. Right. He won't do it. He just won't. I mean, he won't do it. He, he refuses to use. Yeah. He refuses to use his own experience. Now here's the, but the, here's the problem with what you said. It's well, really what if you're colorblind? That could be a problem. Well, what if you're colorblind and you don't have the ability to perceive the information correctly? And we're really not good at, at looking at information correctly or accurately. So there's certain kinds of things that to measure them or to understand them requires an understanding of chemistry, biology, physics, usually mm-hmm. physics, that if you don't have, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Right. I mean, look, let's, let's do a simple thing. Is there a divine creator being? I'm not going to take a position on this, but I will say when you just think about what a human body does, how a human body works, it is so literally unbelievably complex and amazing that I can understand why people would come to a conclusion that there is a divine creator being. Again, I'm not saying there is or there isn't, but it makes sense. When you look out at the sky, yeah, when you look out at the at the sky at night, especially if you're somewhere where there's not a lot of ambient light and you just see all the stars and you contemplate how far away they are, how vast what you can see is, knowing that you can't see that all you need is a small telescope to see 10 times more. It's so literally awesome and overwhelming that there's this interesting phenomenon that I experience of an almost innate urge to find a parental figure that makes it all seem okay. Right. Because it is literally awesome and overwhelming. Right. And it's so, comfortable to, to have an explanation that gives you a rationalization to make sense of things, regardless of how actually rational that explanation is. Correct. And, you know, there's certain things where you can get the data really easily, but you need to know more stuff to, to understand what the data is to what the data is really telling you. So like with the flat earth guys, you know, there's some really, really easy data that you can show them to prove that the earth is curved, but you need to know a couple of other things about like, oh gosh, you know, how light bends when it goes through different surfaces. And if you don't want to get into that again, there's, it goes back to what you're saying before. There's a 
people are distrusting of anyone who knows more than them. Mm-hmm. Didn't used to be that way. It used to right. be that you respected people who had spent time to learn more, but now there's a distrust of people who seem to know more. But they trust and, Nike, which is weird. Well, and that's the thing. Over time, they do trust whatever someone, look, say a lie often enough, people believe it's the truth yep. and then believe it's the truth often enough. And everyone starts to agree because the person who originally said it doesn't need to say it anymore. It becomes right. part of the cultural propaganda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Parents now teach their kids they need arch support and motion control. Nike right. doesn't have to say that anymore. They, mm-hmm. they don't. <laughs> you know, right. they now they just say, don't you want to be like this genetic freak who you will never be like? Right. And know nothing about the shoes that that person's actually wearing. Because I spoke to a designer for Jordan brand and he's like, the shoe that LeBron's wearing, you might think it's the same one you buy off the shelf. That is basically a steel cast put perfectly in an orientation to think that it's helping his foot. Correct. Very weird. Correct. Yeah, it's really funny. LeBron, wait, no, no, no. Kobe, obviously before he died, did a video about what he thought a perfect basketball shoe would be. First of all, it was a low top. Secondly, it looked a lot like our stuff. Hmm. And then what? Do you Nike know where that video is? Is that out in the interwebs? It is. I'll send you a link and you can post it. Yeah, there's a two part two part interview. Right. Because the second part you'll see is really fun. It's the shoe they made, which is not what he asked for. Hmm. Big so, surprise. Yeah, it's like there was some researcher who went to the Adi lab and they analyzed his gait and said, "Well, you know, you're an overstriding heel striker, so we have to make a shoe for you that has extra cushioning in the heel. So, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Of course, that's." They believe that that's a fine thing to do that you need to accommodate for, despite all the research showing you can't accommodate for it. There's no amount of cushioning that accommodates for that. And like you said, if you're not, you know, the light bending part is knowing the intense complexity of the human body and how adaptable and resilient it is. If you don't know that, then you need to take some sort of technology and use that to do that job. And that's like, they're not willing to see how good the body is at self-organizing and adapting to be efficient. And that's the problem. Well, here, let's talk, let's talk about what bodies naturally do. I'm a former all-American gymnast bodies. We did not evolve to do double twisting, double backflips. Right. But we can, I did one. I did it. Well, there you go. You know? so. <laughs> well, you just proved evolution wrong, I guess. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think that's a good place to leave it. You know, no, no, wait going. here. I'm going to, I'm going to prove something else wrong really quickly. One of my best friends became, became a best friend. Uh, He's a world champion, cross country runner, masters world champion. And one day at practice, he finishes a run. He goes, I just set a personal best on one of these runs. And I I wasn't even going to come out this morning because I just felt like crap. I said, Hmm. "Um, do you ever have races where you feel like crap and you win? He goes, yeah. And by the way, I've asked this to a couple of Olympians and they give the exact same answers. Do you ever have races where you felt like crap and you win? Yes. Have you ever ever had races where you felt great and it just, you couldn't make it work? He's Yeah. I said, well, you just disproved sports psychology. Hmm. Or you just created a different realm of sports psychology, which is the total opposite of sports psychology. Well, no, it's, it, well, possibly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've had the same experiences where, you know, both as, a, as an athlete and as a performer, times that I felt the worst, I did the best and vice versa, but it's not that, the, that it's not 100% correlated that way or causal hmm. that way. But suffice it to say, the idea that there's a particular way you need to think because right. it's thinking that determines who wins it's effortless to demonstrate that that's not true by just people's actual experience, by the actual data. I mean, yet people still hold on to it. The whole 10,000 hour idea that, you know, you can become an expert, takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in things. The moment I heard that, I knew it was wrong because as a gymnast and as a sprinter, there's no gymnast or sprinter in history who's ever put in 10,000 hours. You just can't. Right. It, it, your yeah, body's it's not, not physically able. possible. Right. right. And the question that immediately occurred to me is, 
or that immediately hit me is the kind of person who's willing and wants to spend 10,000 hours on something is different than the person who doesn't. And yes. you can't force someone to spend 10,000 hours and turn them into fill in the blank, you know, Les Paul, yep. Michelangelo, Michael Jordan, pick your favorite Michael. doesn't really matter. So, you know, anyway, it, th- this is all, all goes back to our fundamental thing of, of if people learn to think more clearly, their lives could be so much better in certain ways, but, but admittedly not in others. I mean, finding these comforting thoughts, like there is someone looking out for me. It's a really comforting thought if you can maintain it. Yeah. But in the end, it's better. It's once you learn to see discomfort as not necessarily a bad thing and something that is like kind of an internal signal to be like, okay, I have work to do. Guess what? The work never ends. And you have to find joy in the work instead of trying to think that everything's rainbows because it ends up not being the case. Somebody said to the physicist, Richard Feynman, you know, I'd hate to be you because you just see everything as just like, you know, atoms and molecules. It's all, there's no, there's no amazement. He says, are you kidding? I can't look at one of these and still take a drink out of it because it's so unbelievably incredible. Here, let's start with a simple thing. These are solid things that you can see through. What? (laughs) I know. I know. The the world is incredible. And it's, you don't have to, you can drive yourself crazy trying to make sense of it, or you can just embrace that. It's like a form of magic and just embrace the fact that you're in a magical world and it's great. (laughs) It is the the very fact, look, I'm going to start crying. The very fact that we can have a conversation with another human being, whether it's over a computer or not. Yeah. I mean, this is an amazing, amazing world. Even if it didn't have chocolate in it, it would be a very amazing place. <laughs> I'm going to bring you some good chocolate next time I see you, because clearly you're a, I'm going to make sure I got the right kind. So I might have to do some research. As long as it doesn't have the word milk in it, you're on a good, you got a good start. Okay. That's good. I can handle that. So Stephen, thank you for doing this. I look forward to the next one. People yeah, listening, whether you enjoyed it or not, thanks for listening. If you got to hear and uh, <laughs> you, you'll see, <laughs> you'll see us again at some point and yeah, have a good week, Stephen. Cheers. Live life feet first. See ya. Will do. I hope you enjoyed my little rant with Nick and probably to be doing more of those. Go visit Nick at www.thefootcollective.com. And of course, come visit us at www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find previous episodes and ways to interact with us. As always, please like and share and review and give us a thumbs up as appropriate and follow us in all the various places you can. Because, you know, we are creating this movement about natural movement and you are the one who makes it move. So until, oh, and if you have any questions or suggestions, people you think should be on the show, whatever you can think of, drop me an email, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. So until our next episode, go out, have fun, and live life feet first. You've been listening to the Movement Movement Podcast with host Stephen Sashin. Remember to join the tribe and subscribe at jointhemovementmovement.com.